This sermon is brought to you by Buford Road Baptist Church. The speaker today is Pastor Tony Cahoot. I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me today to John's Gospel, chapter 19. And we have been preaching a series on the seven sayings of the cross. And we will speak on sermon number six today, the sixth time Jesus spoke. And so this morning, I'm going to ask you to read with me. They will get these scriptures on the screen for you, the seven sayings of the cross. And I'm going to begin reading in John 19 and verse number 25. And so follow along with me as we read the scriptures together today. The Bible says this, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her unto his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, and I want to stop and say this just for a minute, there was not one single incident of the cross that took Jesus by surprise. The Scripture says this because he was, as we preached last Sunday, he was the God-man. You have to understand this. He was... He was God in the flesh. His body, don't ever think that just because he was Jesus that he didn't suffer. He suffered horribly. He was God in the flesh. We've talked about that. The scripture says this in verse 28, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Let's think about these words today. I'm calling this the words of victory. So let's ask the Lord to meet with us today. Let's ask the Lord to speak to our hearts and maybe show us something in the Word. Maybe we haven't seen or maybe we haven't thought about in quite some time, but that we would all be refreshed. I want you to turn your Bibles real quickly, if you will, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I want to show you a very important verse in verse number 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And verse number 18, because it goes so well in this series in preaching on the cross. The Apostle Paul writes it this way, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. I will emphasize this, that there should never be a more important message that comes from our pulpit than the message of the power of the cross. Not only the power of the cross, but also the power of the resurrection. 
Paul said that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. There's no greater message. We preach series all year long. I'm working very diligently on what I believe to be probably one of, if not the most difficult series that I've ever preached in my entire ministry, other than my father's funeral. But I will tell you, there's not anything more important than the preaching of the cross. You would be surprised, but the world at large today, they despise it. This world is not in favor, really, of what we're doing this morning, and that's gathering in the Savior's name. Uh, we've not gathered in my name, and we've, we've certainly not gathered in your name. We've gathered in the Lord's name. And the Scripture says that when we gather in his name, if he's lifted up, the word says he will draw all men nigh to him. And isn't that what it's all about? All of us being brought to the nearness and the closeness of the Lord Jesus. That's what this is all about. Paul said it this way, the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Nothing should ever become any more important to us than the preaching of the cross. We think about it. When you stop to think about this whole subject, the preaching of the cross, there are, in my study, there are two predominant themes that I would like to mention just for a moment that I've taken notice of. And the cross of Jesus, I believe it, it really echoes these two profound sermons, if you will. One is, the first one is the incredible depths of humiliation that Jesus was willing to endure for our sin. And I'll comment on that in just a minute. The other one is the completion of his mission. When I stop to think about the first aspect of this, the depths of humiliation let us not forget how that he left the ivory palace of heaven. He came to this world. In fact, Rhea sang it so well here in just a few moments ago about in the praise of worship, the depths of sin and shame that the Lord Jesus had come to. The Bible says this, that he became so poor that through his own poverty we might be made rich. So he left the ivory palaces of heaven and he became destitute in such a way that the scripture says he became poor. Yet for our sakes, we can have richness and fullness through him. But not only does the scripture say that he came to the depths of poorness and humility, but there's another place in the scripture that says this, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath no place to lay his head. And so he, he left the ivory palaces of heaven. He became poor. He became destitute. He was rejected. He was brutalized. When we think about the message of the cross, how he descended into the depths of humiliation, but there's also another message that I see 
in the cross, and that is the completion of his mission. Because what he did for us on the cross, and we know that was his purpose in coming, he built a bridge that would restore a relationship with God and man once again. That relationship had been extremely severed in the beginning of time. And I think it's important to know that these words, it is finished, it's not the despairing cry of a helpless martyr. Don't ever think that Jesus was a martyr. He wasn't. Because the truth of the matter is this, he had all of heaven at his disposal. Some of you have heard this old song we sing at Easter from time to time. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. You've heard that old song. But think about how true that is. In the blink of an eye, he could have summoned the arsenals of heaven. He could have just with his spoken word, which he will use to defeat the Antichrist in the end. Just his spoken word, just the blink of his eye. He could have changed the whole thing. So these were not the words of a despairing, helpless martyr. These words this morning, it is finished. It wasn't even the expression of satisfaction that all of his earthly suffering had now come to a climax, that it had all come to an end. These were not the words that now he was going to have relief from a worn-out life. But these words, it is finished. It's a declaration from the divine Redeemer that all he came from heaven to do was now pleasing to God. It was full and it was complete. The pardon, the ransom, the redemption had been paid in full. All that was needed to reveal the full character of God had now been done on the cross. All that the law could not do, Jesus did and accomplished on the cross. The price of redemption was paid in full. The royal precious holy blood of the lamb had been shed. And we find in these words, it is finished that the great purpose of God in the plan of salvation was now acceptable. When you think about this just a little bit deeper and the pleasure God took and the many acts of creation in the beginning. I mean, God took great pleasure when it came down to the time where he was going to create the holy angels. You have to remember that God created the angels. They were not always pre-existing. He created them. God created the cherubims. God created the seraphims. Regardless of what this world thinks, listen, don't ever believe for one moment that there was this big bang and it all happened. And you think about that, how ridiculous this is. They think about this in such ways that they teach it in public schools many occasions. Some of you maybe even had college courses on this theory of evolution, the big bang. Think about it. It takes more faith to believe in that nonsense than it does the Genesis account of creation. Because you think about it, something just exploded in space. And then all of these molecules made their way down to the earth. And then somehow these molecules begin to form life. And 
begin to move and or begin to crawl. And then these molecules that begin to move and crawl, they found them way in a tree. And then all of a sudden, these molecules were now a monkey. Isn't it funny how the monkey ended up with a PhD? My question to the evolutionist is this. If that's true, then why did it stop? Why did it all abruptly stop? If, that's, if that theory is true, don't ever think for one minute that the sun, the moon, the stars, the galaxies, the planets, the waters, the trees, the mountains, the rivers, the rocks, the valleys, the hills, don't ever think for one moment that it just happened. The scripture says that even nature itself teaches us that there is a God. And so God took great pleasure in creating the angels, the cherubims, the mountains, and all that he did in creating the world, mankind. Everything he created, the Bible says when God created it and then God looked upon it, God said it was good. But nothing could have satisfied him any more than the accomplishment of the cross because here now, yes, the sufferings of Jesus were over. The darkness of Calvary was over. The bitter cup had been emptied out. The blood of the lamb had been shed. And now the father and the son, they were now back into fellowship once again, never to be separated ever again. Everything was complete. The price was paid. The only thing left after the cross was the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was bodily raised from the grave. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't say on the cross, I am finished? Aren't you glad he didn't say, I quit? Aren't you glad he didn't say, I'm through? This period of suffering and separation from the Father, the bitter cup, he said, it is finished. And I want us to look a little closer this morning. I've given you four simplistic things to consider with me for these next few moments. Number one, we see the accomplished fulfillment of all the prophecies concerning the death of Jesus. I want you to look with me in Matthew chapter 26 and verse number 56. I mentioned this briefly last Sunday, but they'll get the scripture on the screen for you. Matthew 26 and verse 56. And I want you to look at this important passage. The Bible says this, but all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled then all the disciples forsook him and fled. And so here's the thing. For centuries, men had looked in hope for the promise of the Messiah to come. Here on the cross, their search was over. They would no longer have to look back to the cross or towards the cross. Let me say it this way. The, the Old Testament people who were counted righteous in the Scriptures they were brought into a relationship with God by believing that the Messiah would come and they would look forward to the cross. They believed in faith that the Messiah would come. The prophets preached it. And so it was just as much faith 
to believe that the Messiah would one day come. In fact, Isaiah wrote it like this. He was wounded for our transgressions. He didn't say, you know, we hope that one day that will happen. He spoke from words of confidence. He spoke from words of faith. He spoke in words of belief. There was not a doubt in his mind. He was wounded. He had this faith. He would look towards the cross that the Messiah would come. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our sin was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. This was faith. This was faith looking towards the cross. So all of the prophecies looking towards the cross, all of them now had been fulfilled in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, hanging on the cross. Now today in the New Testament, this day of grace, we are not saved. We're not brought into a relationship with God by looking towards the cross, our faith, we look back to the cross. We believe that, yes, Jesus did come. Yes, that he was the only begotten son of God. Yes, he was the Messiah. Yes, he did die for my sins. So it took just as much faith for those in the Old Testament to be brought into a righteous relationship with God as it does for you and I to look back to the cross and that faith brings us into a relationship with God. And so this morning, when you're looking at your notes today, I want you to understand that this thing of Calvary, the cross, it accomplished the fulfillment of all the prophecies concerning the death of Jesus on the cross. Now, they would look back. You and I look back to what Jesus did, the finished work on the cross. Last Sunday, we took time to go through the Psalms, and I gave you every one of the prophecies leading up to the cross. Number two this morning, I want you to see the completion of his sufferings. And thank God he will never, ever experience, number one, broken fellowship with God again. That was suffering enough for the Lord Jesus. But he would never, ever have to suffer at the hands of evil, wicked men ever again. I thought about it this way, and I made some notations. Follow along with me just for a moment. The first time he came, he came to a crucifixion. The first time he came, they were with a mob yelling, crucify him, crucify him. The second time he comes, they will not be saying, crucify him. We will be saying, all hail the power of Jesus' name. The first time he came, he came to a cross. The second time he comes, he comes to a throne. The first time he came to be judged. The second time he will be the judge. The first time he stood before Pilate. The second time Pilate will stand before him. And so I want you to understand in these words we find the completion of his sufferings. Aren't you glad he was willing to pay the price? By the way, I've said this a million times. He was our only hope. The scripture says this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse number two. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, who, who was the joy? Every single one of us, we were the joy. We were all set before him. We were the joy. Look at this who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He paid the price. He suffered the debt. 
He endured the cross, despising the shame. He set himself humbly aside and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. I'm so glad that when he was challenged, if you are the son of God, come down and save yourself. I'm so thankful today that he didn't do that. The wages of sin had been paid for on the cross. And I want you to see this in Revelation chapter 13, verse number 8, because this goes all the way back even before man was created, in the heart of God, I want you to see where the, the price of redemption was all along. It, God just didn't stumble across the sin of man. In Revelation chapter 13, verse number 8, the word says, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb. Look at this. Slain from the foundation of the world. Nothing else can be added to the scope of grace to the atonement. Thank God it's been done. Number three this morning, I want you to see this. We see the clarity of the atonement. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Have you ever stopped and wondered, why, why blood? Why did God choose blood? Why did it have to be blood? This is one of the reasons why many people of the world, they, they are so vehement against Christianity because they call us uh, a bloody religion. They don't mind showing the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But when you preach about the blood of Jesus, they go ballistic. But have you ever wondered about why blood? Why did God choose this? Why did God choose blood to rescue us from sin? The scripture says that God chose this method before the foundation of the world. Jesus was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. And many people have asked this question, why blood? And they've criticized us because of the blood. But the word of God makes it clear. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse number 22, the word says this, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. And so here's the thing. When Adam and Eve sinned, God's judgment was that their life, their life would be taken. God said, the day that you disobey me, he said, thou shalt surely die. Now, eventually, that would lead up to a physical death. But the very instant that they had sinned in the garden, they spiritually died. But the truth of the matter is this. God's judgment was because they had disobeyed him, God said, because of that, I am going to require your life. Your life will be taken. And Romans 6.23 says this, for the wages of sin is death. That's talking about a spiritual death, by the way, an eternal separation from God. But here's the point. Sin and disobedience took their life. God said, the day that you eat of this, he said, you're going to surely die. And by the way, sin not only takes or took their life, sin takes ours as well. In Romans 5.12, the Bible says this, whereas by one man's sin entered into the world and death by sin, 
And so death passed upon all men. All of us have become sinners because of sin. All of us, for that all have sinned. So sin was so awful in the mind and the heart and the eyes of God that the only thing that could satisfy God is that someone would have to pay the judgment of death on their behalf. So follow me now. As a sinner, a sinner cannot pay with his life for another sinner. It's impossible. The only person who could give their life for another was Jesus. There's a passage of Scripture in the Old Testament. I want you to see this in Leviticus chapter 17 and verse number 11. The Bible says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood, look at this, it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. It's the blood. God accepted, if you remember, the blood sacrificed of Abel. Think about this. On the first passing of the Passover in Egypt, God had instructed the children of Israel to take the blood and put it on the doorpost, the lintel. And he said this. He said, I'm going to send the death angel through Egypt. And he said, I'm going to take the life of every firstborn whose house does not have the blood applied. Blood was required. After that, once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies to offer the sacrifice for the sins of the people for the period of one year. Once a year this happened. Now, listen carefully, because of the blood's relationship to life. Blood signifies the supreme offering to God. What the blood of animals could not do, what it could not produce. Eternally, the blood of Jesus has done. The blood of Jesus, listen now, it redeems us, it reconciles us, it pays our ransom, it washes our sins away, it forgives us, it frees us, it justifies us, it cleanses us, it sanctifies us, it opens our way to the presence of God, it helps us to overcome the enemy. Thank God for the blood of Jesus. Without it, we would be destitute. Amen. I like that old song. I'm glad we still sing blood songs in the church. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath its flood lose all their guilty stains. It's satisfied. The blood satisfied God's justice. And when it satisfied God's justice, God gave us mercy. You think that through. It became our shelter from the storms of life, the troubles and trials of life. It became our Noah's Ark. It became our honey in the rock. It became our bridge to the Father. It became our salvation from hell. It provided eternal forgiveness from sin. And number four, quickly, and our musicians come forward. These words 
It is finished, meant destruction of all of Satan's dreams. I want you to think with me now just for a moment. Look with me in Matthew 27, verse number 40. And saying that thou destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the son of God, come down from the cross. That's exactly what the devil wanted Jesus to do, was to come down. And the devil did not take lightly getting kicked out of heaven, by the way, in the beginning. When God kicked the devil out of heaven, you say, was he there to begin with? Absolutely. You have to remember this, that the devil was a created angel, just like all the other created angels. The problem was when the devil said, I'm going to exalt my throne above your throne, God. I'm going to be like the most high. I want to be worshipped. Let's just trade places a little while. I'm going to be God. I'm going to be worshipped, and, and I want you to bow down to me. God said, I'm not heaven, that God expelled him. And when he did, Satan led a third of heaven's angels astray. You think about that just for a moment. A third of them. The devil didn't take lightly being kicked out of heaven. And as a result of that, he declared war against God. He declared war against Jesus, against the Holy Spirit. He declared war against all of God's creation. And after having deceived now a third of heaven's angels without question, I believe this happened. The devil assembled all of his fallen angels together, all the demonic activity, and the devil called this high-level meeting, if you would. And he said this, from this day forward, we're going to wreak as much havoc as we can on God, the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit, everybody that would assemble in his name, everybody that would speak in his name, everybody that would lift up his name. We're going to create as much trouble for them as we possibly can. And so the devil came to this earth with a mission. He came deceiving Adam and Eve right from the beginning. And in the fall, when Adam and Eve sinned, the devil, I believe, he looked into God's face and said, I've got you now, and I'm not through. I've started with them, and I'm not through. He then caused Cain to kill his brother. He then turned Sodom and Gomorrah into a land of perversion. He then raised up the false prophets of Baal. He then possessed King Herod's heart to kill all the baby boys two years old and under. He then tempted Jesus in the wilderness, and now he brutalized him on the cross. I'm sure that there was a point in time when the devil looked at all of this, and he said, I have got you now. This is too much for you to handle, Jesus. Look at you now. You can't even think straight. He was in no doubt saying, I believe at the cross, you should have listened to me. You should have traded places with me in the beginning. You wouldn't be in this mess. In the wilderness temptation, I'm sure the devil looked at Jesus and said, you remember back then I would have made you rich? I would have given you kingdoms. All you had to do was bow down and worship me. Now look at you. Look at your mother over here crying. Look at what people have done to you. You could have had this completely different if you had just traded spots with me for a moment. But his dream would end up being his ultimate defeat. Jesus had no intention of letting the devil win that day any day since then, today, 
or tomorrow. As Jesus defeated him in the wilderness three times, Jesus defeated him on the cross. And he defeated hell, death, and the grave forever. Because of that, we now have power to defeat him as well. We don't have to live our lives in fear and trembling. So many times the devil comes at us and he plays with our mind. He plays with our heart. And he begins to poke at us here and poke at us there. And listen, some, if we're not careful, if we're not on praying ground, if we're not where we ought to be with God, listen, the devil can make a havoc out of our life. He can intimidate us. He can remind us of things of our past. He can take away our joy. He can take away the sunshine. In our, if we let him, we, he can do that. But listen, you don't have to let him do that. As Jesus defeated him on the cross, Jesus defeated him in the empty tomb. I'm telling you, Jesus has given us power to look the devil straight in the eye and say, listen, I am a child of God and greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Amen. You don't have to be intimidated by the devil. Because of the cross and the resurrection, as Jesus defeated the devil, you and I can defeat him. He's already a defeated foe. And we can defeat the devil in every single area of our life because of the cross. It is finished. The cross is not a work in progress. It's done. You know, there's a lot of people that want to live their spiritual lives or religious lives with this, this word called do. If I can just do this, if I can just do that, uh, then maybe I can work myself into God's good graces if I, if I just do this and do that. But I want you to know something, that our faith is not built on the word do. Our faith is built on the word done. Done. It is finished. You listen to Pastor Tony Cahoot. For more information, visit our website at BufordRoadBaptistChurch.com.